I'm going to be signing a national emergency. And it's been signed many times before. It's been signed by other presidents. From 1977 or so, it gave the presidents the power. There's rarely been a problem. They sign it. Nobody cares. I guess they weren't very exciting. Welcome to a special emergency episode of Banter. I'm Matt Winesett, and I'm joined once again by Max Frost. Hello, Max. Hey, Matt. We are taping this on Friday afternoon, shortly after President Trump declared a national emergency at the southern border. And whenever there is an emergency at AEI, there is one person to call, Rick Berger. Rick is a research fellow at AEI, where he works on the the defense budget, military appropriations, and other national security budget-related issues. Before this, he worked for the U.S. Senate Committee on the Budget. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, gents. All right. So what is going on? What does all this mean? What happened? So today, as most people expected for weeks, the president not only signed the border deal that congressional negotiations negotiators had put together, but said, this money isn't enough for me. I wanted $5.7 billion. You gave me $1.4. I'm going to make up the difference by myself. Um, what he did today is something that he's been telegra- telegraphing for a long time. He's using... Uh, certain statutory authorities that kind of give deference to the executive about how to repurpose funds that have already been given from Congress to the administration. In combination with that, he's declaring a national emergency about the southern border, which opens up further authorities so he can move even more money around. In that specific case, it's military construction funding. So you laid out, you wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal along with AI's Mackenzie Eaglin support the troops, don't declare an emergency on February 10th. Um, Obviously, he didn't listen. That's exactly what he did. But in this piece, you laid out a whole argument about why not to declare an emergency. Can you just summarize that briefly here? Sure. So I think there's a couple of different ways to look at this and why it is short-sighted. The first one is specifically on the core of the money he's going to be using. That's going to be military construction funding. The Pentagon already has $100 billion in deferred maintenance on its buildings. Uh, We had folks, military families up on Capitol Hill just yesterday telling horror stories about family housing. We have been taking risks. Deferred maintenance, it's like backlogged. Exactly, yeah. So it's any type of repairs or kind of slight upgrades to your facilities that you need, kind of the normal upkeep on anyone's house. Um, And sometimes we upgrade those. Sometimes they've gotten so bad that we have to replace them. That's what military construction funding is used for. The other half of that is you've got all sorts of new training ranges, both here and abroad. You've got new uh, missile defense radar construction. The president is going to try to, and and OMB will try to spread this stuff out so that it doesn't hurt. But that's exactly how we got to the place where we are at right now in terms of how bad the military's infrastructure is, uh, both in terms of operational infrastructure, training ranges, uh, hangars. We saw a bunch of planes get destroyed Uh, heavily damaged in the hurricane down at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida because we're skimpy on our construction. And you combine that with the bad family housing. Exit surveys show that uh, military folks leave the service all the time because of this exact issue. Uh, This is going to hurt people. And it may not be immediately obvious, but a death by a thousand cuts is still a slow, painful death. On the other hand of that, politically, 
this really hurts the Senate GOP. There's a lot of vulnerable GOP senators in 2020 who are going to have to vote either next week or the week after on a resolution of disapproval when it comes over from the House. It only needs 51 votes to pass. Four Republicans vote for it, and as many as 10 or more could. It's going to pass. The president's going to have to veto it. They're going to have to take another vote. I mean, you're asking Republicans to vote between the border wall, between the military, and between concerns about limited government. It's a no-win vote. They're going to get slammed for it over the next two years, no matter what happens. Does McConnell have to let that vote come up, or can he just not take the vote? So there's a little bit of wiggle room in terms of how the National Emergency Act actually governs this. There's not a specific process. But the kind of conventional thinking is that it will almost certainly come up for a vote pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, because he's usually pretty good about shielding the GOP from these type of harmful votes. Do you think, I mean, he, I think he came out and said that he's fine with the emergency. A month ago, he said he wasn't, but whatever. And then Lindsey Graham obviously is backing up Trump. Are there still some Republicans out there that you think will buck Trump on this and vote uh, voicing disapproval with the resolution? Absolutely. Or- I think in particular, the Senate GOP has spent the better part of a couple of months once these rumors started to leak out about an emergency declaration telling the president, please don't do this for, for a number of reasons. One, it hurts them. Two, it hurts the military. Three, you've got a lot of people who are going to be there for a while and they're concerned about what a President Cory Booker or a President Kamala Harris would do with this. Any other Democratic president. Oh, I mean, God. <laughs> we, it, most of these folks spent eight years and for some of them, even under George W. Bush, kind of excoriating the usage of executive authority to get around uh, congressional inaction. And for them, I think this just took Pandora's box and rather than kind of opening it a little bit, just pulled the top off of it. Yeah, there's something in the Wall Street Journal editorial today about this. And they said you can just imagine declaring an, a climate emergency in a few years to get the Green right. Deal. You know, parts of that through. Absolutely. And just yesterday, uh, Speaker Pelosi said, you know, it's a real emergency, gun violence. I'm shocked that there hasn't been more people freaking out about what that looks like in the future if if gun violence is a national emergency. I mean, there's all sorts of these are very specific authorities that the president is using right now. But once you declare an emergency, and that's why we, we've had dozens of them, there are dozens that are still active, it opens up all sorts of stuff in the U.S. code in terms of uh, authorities for the president to move quickly and do stuff that he otherwise wouldn't be able to. Yeah, and that's been, that was his defense in the press conference today was that Obama did this, Bush did this, we've had this law since 1975 or whatever. So can the, will the courts stop this, or are they just going to kind of defer to the presidential authority on this? So I'm not a lawyer, and I do not play one on TV, but... Um, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I don't play one on the podcast either. Damn it. Um, but I, I think there's basically two routes. One aspect of this is the courts have traditionally deferred to the executive when it comes to these sorts of national security determinations. So if you go back decades and decades, and, it, and it's only gotten worse or better, depending on your how you view this. Uh, but certainly under the Bush 43 presidency, we saw a kind of massive change in, in how the president um, used his national security authorities. We saw that continually expanded under the Obama administration. So there, there's definitely going to be numerous challenges on that front. But I think at the end of the day, that's kind of the safest part. The parts that are more vulnerable are whether or not his moving money around under these authorities that are unlocked by the emergency declaration 
is actually constitutional because it's going to run into problems about whether or not they're following congressional intent in terms of how this money was supposed to be used. In the past, these this particular authority, which is called uh, Section 2808, has been used to, like when a commander needs a new base in Iraq immediately and doesn't want to sit through any red tape, it's been used for that kind of thing. Same thing in Afghanistan. A couple of times after 9-11, when we had kind of inadequate security at places where we stored WMDs. So taking that history and then pitting it against what the president is doing now, I think is going to be much more kind of sporty in the courts. Yeah, well, well, it's kind of amazing. The Washington Post had this piece um, last month in January. Um, 2018, there were about 400,000 arrests, people coming across the borders. That's compared to 1.7 million in 2000. So, I mean, the argument, I just can't imagine the argument is going to hold up that we're actually facing an emergency on this. Yeah. I think there's a, there'll be a lot of back and forth on the statistics. That'll be the, like the evidentiary part of it will be pretty brutal in terms of how much material is going to be put together. But we've been fighting this fight about immigration for, you know, as long as the country's been around, but in the modern form for at least since the Reagan years. And that stuff, I, I think, may be convincing for some of the justices, but probably not for the others. I think particularly we have a Supreme Court that's heavily conservative at this point, And this is not an issue that unites conservatives. Executive overreach is something that the Republican Party and the conservative movement has always split on. There are people who really love the unitary executive theory. Uh, Shout out to Vice. What a great movie. (laughs) And there are people who are deeply, deeply skeptical of it. I mean, uh, Senator Lamar Alexander, who's kind of a stalwart movement conservative, just came out and said, uh, basically said all but I'm not I'm going to vote for the resolution disapproval on those exact grounds saying this is not how the Constitution meant for this to happen. So, yeah, I think there's going to be I mean, there are, there's like a dozen ways to attack this legally. And I expect plenty of people will. Yeah. One of their concerns I remember during the Kavanaugh hearing was that they thought that he had far too deferential a view of executive authority. So I can't even imagine if this goes to the Supreme Court and Kavanaugh is the one that writes the opinion justifying Trump's emergency. But that's probably a ways away. The Ninth Circuit will <laughs> tie this up. Uh, you always hear, though, that the U.S. defense budget is massive. It's bloated. We have we spend more than the next however many countries combined. Why? I mean, and this is what, like another $7 billion that we're going to move around? Isn't that just a drop in the bucket? I feel like that could be Trump's, maybe one of his points is like, look, we have so much money to defend. So what does this matter? Yeah. No, that's a good... Uh, we'll see if he takes that tack. I know, going back to that last point, there were two kind of shocking things that he said during the press conference, uh, depending on how you define shocking. <laughs> um, but the one was, he said, I didn't need to do this. Yeah. He said, I didn't need to do it, but I wanted to get the wall done faster. I mean, that's the sort of argument that I think when you take it, as, as happened during the travel ban case, when you take the, the, the executive words and apply them to the case, it can be a little dicey. The other thing he said was, you know, I looked at the list of military projects that we had here and eh, I wasn't, they didn't sound that important to me. And I've talked about how I think that's not true in the short term. These things aren't easy to see, but they do matter to service members, to their families, to military readiness, and to the ability of the military to defend the nation and achieve its interests. 
The more worrying problem, I think, is in the long term, because this emergency declaration now puts the border wall at the heart of the next budget deal negotiations. So if you're sick of uh, budget deals and continuing resolutions and government shutdowns, uh, just wait, because we're only, this was the first season, and the next season is going to be much bigger and much better. In January of next year, sequestration comes back. The Defense Department is facing nearly $300 billion in cuts. Those are mirrored on the non-defense, the kind of domestic discretionary program side that everybody loves. So Congress and the president are going to have to come together to find a deal. What the president has basically done here is undermine his own request because he has given uh, you know, Adam Smith and Dick Durbin, the, the top um, Senate, House and Senate um, military Democrats an excuse to say this whole defense budget request, like Matt said, is not credible. You don't need that much. How is it that important? Why do you need $733 billion if you can take $6 billion of it away immediately? So he's in a lot of ways hurt himself while also pitting the military against immigration control, which is typically you know, two winning issues for the Republican Party and conservatives. Well, that, yeah, it's part of the reason it seems so interesting to me is because, I mean, he campaigned as being, you know, he was there for the military. He was the military right. guy. And, and he secured a pretty big funding increase for the military. Right? Yeah. But there, there are some worries about whether or not th- this setup is worse than the last one. You know, we had Secretary Mattis, who the president deeply, deeply respected. Mm-hmm. And um, all due respect, the man who's now acting defense secretary, uh, the president, uh, you know, this has been reported, like, forgets his name and calls him the Boeing guy <laughs> because he used to work at Boeing. So you, mm-hmm. you, you know how these deals are done. They're done in the room with five people talking to the president. And that's how the president secured that large funding increase. That was Mattis. It was Senator McCain in the room with the president explaining why this was necessary. We don't have those kind of voices this time, so it, it's going to be a lot more difficult. And how do you think it will play politically with the military and its backers, people who were probably pretty big Trump voters before, I would guess? Yeah. I don't know exactly, but I just... Um, I, I think the, the military's voting records are generally pretty... People see what they want in them. It's a it, the military is remarkably kind of reflective of the broader society in a lot of ways. I do think you've seen kind of a secular trend in terms of support for the Republican Party uh, because of this kind of cumulative, you know, saying that you love the military and getting more money, which was good, but then taking a lot of actions that actually harm the military, misuse the military. The military has always been used to a small extent for border security kind of support. But this is a whole, this is a qualitative difference where they're taking a leading role. And um, my guess is none of the largely soldiers, both active duty and and National Guard being sent to the southern border are really thrilled to be stringing up concertina wire uh, when they should be doing training for kind of high-end warfare. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what does this mean in practice for them? Are we going to have a bunch of Soldiers in uniform building picket fences down down there in the Rio Grande Valley, or like yeah, pretty much. I mean, in essence, um, there was a great picture that the Washington Post had uh, recently. I think it was in Nogales, and it was just soldiers stringing up multiple lines of wire. Um, it, it's really manpower, yeah. is all it is. And 
there are some things that the military can do kind of capability-wise that uh, CBP can't. But we already have people supporting CBP doing those kinds of things. So they're mostly, they're not kind of doing things that are making them more ready for their military missions, another another way to say it. And they're just going to be sitting around because when we talk about the court case, the Section 2808, quote-unquote, I forgot we're on a podcast, so I can't I can't do the, the uh, Dr. Evil, <laughs> the Dr. Evil air quotes. The quote-unquote requires the use of the armed forces. So I think he's probably going to have to send more troops to the border, basically anywhere that they're using the wall. If you want to keep a good legal argument, you got to send people and you got to keep them there. And even if the courts stay this, they're going to be sitting around because you can't, you can't say that, well, this is state in court, so it's no longer an emergency until <laughs> the Supreme Court gets around to it. Yeah. I mean, do we do we think this might go all the way to the Supreme Court? I think it's any? almost certain to. <laughs> it's almost certain to. Okay. Uh, the president said it himself today. I think he's his legal advisors have basically told him this is going to be exactly like the travel ban. He had like a 25-second uh, a soliloquy where he kind of laid out all the steps. He goes, you know, we'll go to district court, and then the Ninth Circuit is going to rule against us, and then we'll go to the Supreme Court. So I quite likely, yeah. I mean, this is, this is a large enough issue that uh, the Supreme Court is will be – they may not be thrilled to take this up, but it is well within their wheelhouse. For people who aren't super knowledgeable about military affairs, who are some of the ma- major players, now that Mattis is out, who are the major players who could kind of talk Trump back or down or, you know, kind of back on this? This is me not answering because <laughs> there's uh, the bench is thin these days. You have General Dunford, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the nation's highest ranking military officer. You have Secretary Shanahan, who, again, I said is the acting secretary. Um, Trump seems to like people being acting because it gives him more authority over them. Uh, It detracts from their power both within the cabinet and within the department. Beyond that, there's not a ton of people. Uh, uh, Senator Inhofe is the new chairman of the Armed Services Committee. He actually just, in essence, told Secretary Shanahan that he's not going to be the the permanent secretary uh, on just, it was a lovely Wednesday morning while Shanahan was in Europe. It was kind of brutal. Um, Is that because Trump doesn't want him or Inhofe just won't Inhofe confirm doesn't, him? Inhofe doesn't want him. It's, it's a, for him, it was a kind of comparison with Mattis issue. Um, there's not a whole lot of people who are going to be in the room who can talk to the president about this. The people who are in the room we know are, you know, for instance, acting chief of staff, McMulvaney who kind of rose to fame as a Tea Party fiscal hawk who openly opposed military spending. Uh, I think a lot of people have probably seen Senator McCain yell at people. I've never seen him yell at anyone like he yelled at Mick Mulvaney during his confirmation uh, to be OMB director, actually voted against him. So in terms of who's going to be in the room for the end of this or as we move down the line and start to see impacts on the military, start to see the negotiation, um, the, the leverage on negotiations slip and possibly losing a lot of funding, there's not a whole lot of kind of artillery, if you'll spare my really <laughs> boring and apposite but low-hanging fruit metaphor. Um, 
we're, there's we're, just we're not a, that one. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, this. Uh, I mean, this is a strange alliance because I mean, it seems like Lindsey Graham is one of Trump's big allies on this, but he's also now that without John McCain in the Senate, he's probably the biggest advocate of increased spending. I would think. So, what do you think he is thinking? I mean, is does he not think that this will handicap the negotiations next year when Trump wants more defense spending? It's hard to say. Um, I think he is thinking about re-election, not just his own, but the rest of 2020. And there are certain states in which this is going to play well. Like there, there are certain places in the country where uh, if you pit the immigration control issue against the military, immigration control is going to win. Yeah. And that's okay. That's the electorate. Whether he has thought out how this kind of affects the military spending down the line, I don't know. Um, I know the people who are going to be pushing it this year are um, not necessarily who have pushed it before. So, And a lot of those folks, I think, will be in the same place as Graham. But there's going to be at least a dozen Republicans who are on the wrong side of this. Uh, we've already seen more than a dozen express some serious concerns, even, even if they don't end up voting against it. But The wrong side as in the anti-Trump side? And the, like. Not that we're making it. Uh, on the uh, sorry, yeah, on the on the wrong side of the resolution yeah. of disapproval from the White House's perspective, um, that's going to force him to to veto it. So, it's we're in weird times when it comes to political coalitions. We've been in weird times for a while. Um, so one other thing, you wrote this, you wrote a blog today for AEI's website. I did, I did. You did. <laughs> you did. I'm wrong, um, Randy. And you you wrote in here that. The Senate GOP, you said, can fence off the military construction account? Yeah. What What is that process? What does that entail? I didn't write that. Um, <laughs> no. Co-written with Mackenzie. So, for me. Um, no, I, when you look at the statute, how it's written, uh, this is Section 2808, and I hate saying that. It's super nerdy. But what a lot of people want to do is challenge the president on the emergency declaration. And my thinking is you're not going – that's not where you win here if you if you want to win. The way you win is by going out, going after the separations of, of powers, power of the purse issue. And a really elegant way to do this with the authority that we're talking about is you just say, we're, Mr. President, I'm not going to tell you where and when you can declare an emergency. That's all fine. But if you want to use military construction funding, this ha- that, that has to happen in a zone in which we have troops or in active hostilities. And that's a well-defined term that we use in foreign policy world um, uh, surrounding the war powers resolution. So I I think that would fence off the military construction funding pretty quickly. And then, I mean, fine, if you want to try to find it elsewhere, okay. But this authority specifically is for usage in wartime. Um, And whether or not border security is a national security issue is something we're going to be arguing a lot about over the next two years, unfortunately. I don't think there's a real right answer. I mean, everything is the national security issue and nothing is. But whether national security issues kind of get into that realm of military issues, I think is clearer. And there's just, there's no way this is a military issue. And you could prevent the misusage of military construction funds just by adding a little line. And And it would be bipartisan. I think a lot of Republicans would probably vote for it as long as there was some way to find funding elsewhere um, within DHS uh, even within the defense department that's not that the defense department already spends money on 
counter drug support. I, that the president is going to use that authority too. So um, I just think this sets this sets a really bad precedent and uh, is short sighted in more ways than you can count. All right, so we're almost out of time. So final question: You are a Chicago Bears fan. Oh. Last year they had a heartbreaking end of the season with the now infamous. Why are you bringing double, this up? Double doink. Uh, so extra question: Who will have a better 2019? Donald Trump or the Chicago Bears? The <laughs> Bears. No, I think the Bears are, are primed for year two. Uh, we're not counting Mitch Trubisky's first season, so that's <laughs> fine. Um, no, the president's going to have a rough year. Uh, this is going to be a brutal fight. Uh, he may relish that, but we're rapidly hitting the point where we're not getting anything else done. Uh, as the closer we get, every day we get closer to 2020, but the president and Congress want to do less. We've got, you know, 10 people, Senate Dems running. Nobody wants to vote ever. So I don't think he's going to have a great year. Okay. But maybe early 2020 is when it, when it happens for him. Okay. Same with the Bears. That's playoff time. But I don't know if he can get more brutal than the double doink. So no, you we'll, we'll see what happens with the president. All right. Rick, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, guys. And thank you all for listening. If you're not already, please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star rating and review. You can also send any feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'll be back on Thursday with an exciting interview with Larry Bacow, the president of Harvard University. We'll see you then. And thank you for listening. You can, we'll do this later.